Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. What happens when an industry, an entire industry, of which you are a part, is laid off in a single day? Filmed during the height of the pandemic, Last Call, the shutdown of NYC bars, explores the social and economic impact COVID-19 had on New York City's hospitality industry. The film follows Jenna Ellenwood, a bartender in Queens, New York, as she and her co-workers and friends recount their experiences in the dawning realization that they are going to lose their jobs to a deadly new virus. Director, producer, and writer Johnny Sweet, whose previous work includes Quiet Storm, the Ron Artest story, joins us today to talk about his new film, Last Call, the shutdown of NYC bars. Johnny Sweet, welcome to Film School Radio. Uh, Thanks, Mike. Uh, Thank you for having me. I have the feeling that you had a personal connection to Sparrows before you started this project, or did you? I met my wife there. Well, okay. Well, that is certainly that that meets that criteria. And so as where were you when New York City began to be impacted by this at that time, kind of vaguely understood illness that was coming from seems seemingly from everywhere? Where were you when this started to happen? I was in Queens, about two blocks away from where Sparrow is, and we were Every 10 minutes, there was an ambulance that flew by our apartment all day, all night, probably for about six weeks. So we were we were right in the middle of it. And as a what was your sort of your first impressions of what was happening? Um, what given that I believe at that time we we had a vague understanding of this virus and its impact that it already had on Europe. And obviously, the what the origin story was that it came from China. So, what sort of how were you kind of processing what was happening? I mean, our my the industry that I worked in that I work in is uh, predominantly the sports media industry and documentary lanes, and all of our projects got shut down. So, obviously, that was the first thing that I thought of was, you know, how am I going to work? And then the second thoughts I had were for the neighborhood bars and restaurants across New York, mainly because I, you know, I worked at a bar in college all four years and some of the best friends I ever made in my life were from that group. And this was a bar called Conrad's actually up in Syracuse. So I've always had an affection for the neighborhood bar and what it means to a community. I immediately thought, well, you know, we're right here in the heart of Queens. There's neighborhood bars on almost every block. I was looking to see if there was a, an interview subject who would feel comfortable in the middle of this craziness to have a camera on them during, you know, while we were living through this. And luckily we found Jenna. Yeah, Jenna's terrific. Jenna is in some ways our guide in this journey through this period of time in New York City history, uh, the, the very recent history. And also through her, through the bar Sparrow, we get to know it kind of widens out. The, the documentary film kind of widens out into the discussions about the importance of the hospitality industry and in many ways that I hadn't thought through. And I thank you for that. And also you give us a pretty concise amount of information from professionals who are dealing with at the time, doctors, people who are therapists. There's a couple of 
uh, people that w- were on the ground in Queens. And where where's the New Rochelle Synagogue, uh, Young Israel? Was that in Queens or was that some? No, that's in New Rochelle, which is a suburb about uh, 20 miles northeast outside of outside of New York. Uh, if you're a sports guy, so it's where it's where Ray Rice is from. Okay, so I and I'm sorry, I should have known it wasn't in actually New York City proper, but yes. So thank you for that, and that this was in some ways patient X of of what. I think is I don't know if it's been factually established completely, but apparently an attorney who vis- who was a member of that synagogue may have been the person that started COVID in New York City. So it was is that fair to say it that way? Or uh, if they weren't patient X, they were they were definitely one of the first. I think that's safe to say. Has it been narrowed down officially yet? Uh, no, just because you know there's so much information cluttered with. Right. Uh, with the right. virus that and how it impacted the city. But it definitely did contact trace uh, him, the members of that synagogue and through grants through the M- Metro North Grand Central train into, you know, into the heart of Manhattan. You know, that's one of the things about medicine and, and data that we're able kind of we can check sort of the, the trajectory that the path of certain things now in ways that would have been unimaginable just a few years ago. So, but that's, it's sort of, a, that's a sidebar. It's just an interesting part of, of the telling of the story. But from there, people began to get wind that this thing was serious and that it was, they didn't seem to be a treatment for it. At least at that time, it was just a matter of triage for these people, right? Again, this is impacting the world around you, not only in your work, but also, are you knowing people at this point that were being infected? Um, I knew a few, uh, but I got lucky. They were people who were either around my age or younger and in pretty good shape, and they seemed to be okay, and they did not pass it on to any of their relatives. So uh, for me, I was lucky in that sense. I didn't have to go through any of that, but we were definitely on the front lines outside outside Mount Sinai and Elmhurst, and you know, it was... Um, it was a different view there. Uh, obviously, we were filming from far away and in basically like Breaking Bad looking outfits. But yeah, it felt like a, this weird post-apocalyptic kind of environment. It was some, obviously something I had no experience with before. So that was definitely a, that was definitely a learning curve, uh, you know, in real time. Mm-hmm. So, so your instincts as an artist and a filmmaker, at what point did they kick in? What sort of how did uh, uh, last call, the shutdown of NYC. How did that sort of start for you? St. Patrick's Day, when they shut everything down right before St. Patrick's Day, I was like, oof, that is a financial kick in the gut for that entire industry. And in order for this to be as authentic as possible, you know, we have to start documenting somebody immediately that is going through this. And more importantly, somebody who is comfortable being documented in this time period where we don't know the projection of this virus, what it can do, how dangerous it is. Uh, so that's that's when that kind of kicked in. So that's that's where Jenna comes into the story and her and her story. And she is a wonderful guide, as I said before. She's just uh, she's personable. She's honest. She seems very straightforward, and she likes to talk. Apparently, according to people we get to know around her, that she is she's no uh, she's no shrinking violet. No, no, she loves words. And she says a lot of them. So, well, great. And also, want to uh, sort of frame this what looks like a beautiful community of Queens, and there's the sort of the the ethnic 
um, diversity, but certainly seems like there might be a predominance in this particular neighborhood of the Greek community. And and you, this is the thing about your film is that you give us all of this, uh, these details. They really color it in in a way so that as we get to know these people, we get to understand where they're coming from and how important not only is what's happening to friends and family, but how important it is for this kind of uh, uh, social infrastructure, this support network that these people are a part of. We didn't want to just make a random COVID film. This had to be personable and relatable to as many people as possible. So the fact that we found this group, this group of friends, really, we lucked out. Yeah, she's terrific. There's so there are many other people. There's is it Nikki Carnaggio? Carnaggio? And yes. then and then I want to just mention a few. Mike Freeland, who was oh, they're all connected in some manner, speaking to Sparrow. Willie McIntyre Jr., who uh is just terrific. There's so many terrific people in the film that are honest and and really can look in the camera and tell you exactly what was going through their mind and why it's important and why they matter why they matter, why they should matter to us, right? Yeah, they're also, they're just microcosms of, you know, basically mirrors of trauma that, I, you know, that all of us, you know, went through. Did did I understand this correctly? Did Willie lose his mom during this period of time? Did I? He, he lost his aunt. His aunt, okay. Again, people dealing directly with what was happening. Um, and then, as I mentioned, this, these healthcare professionals like Gail Harris, Ovena, uh, Dr. Rachel De La, De La Fuente, and Dr. Stephen Mulebauer, and how we get this kind of sense of just how did all did these people just kind of come to you? Did you sort of discover them along the way? I had a great friend in Amy Dash, who is a sports radio reporter and legal analyst who was uh, friends with Dr. Narash, yeah. and she bridged that. Uh, she bridged that together. So that's really credit. That's really credit to her. And we felt it was important to get this group of people because what we were trying to show is, and I hopefully we were successful doing this, was how these two communities needed each other in order to bend the curve. And, uh, you know, they were, uh, I couldn't, the, the medical professionals that spoke during this time period with all the stuff that they were facing, uh, we could not be more grateful that they, you know, relayed their present thoughts during that time period on camera. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to that idea that this is real time. These are real time interviews. So in addition to their day job of saving lives and and uh, and but their care for the community, they're they're essentially how much they they were invested in the people that they knew and worked with and this community of Queens. The film, again, is Last Call, the shutdown of NYC bars it will be available here in Los Angeles uh, beginning this Friday, uh, July 16th at virtually through the Lemley Theater chain. And you can also find out all you'd need to know about screenings and getting to know some of the people in greater depth by going to lastcalldocumentary.com and that will fill you in on all this additional information. I haven't seen any documentaries so far on this kind of ground level impact that COVID had on New York City down to this level of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I'm so impressed with how quickly we get to know these people and how quickly we feel for what they're going through. And also, let's not forget, they're still going through, right? This is, not, this is kind of a, a rolling disaster. How are people now, to, as we sit here in July of 2021, 
what's the uh, impact been? Oh, well, this is why we are making a sequel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, this, this industry has been forgotten about still, even though they sacrifice their financial and personal livelihoods in order to help, uh, help this city fend off the virus. And a lot of that unfortunately has to do with state politics, which we'll be diving into in the next film. A lot of it has to do with the state liquor authority that came back out in, you know, four times the bureaucratic capacity that they had before the pandemic. And then obviously they expanded and they went out and started fining these uh, neighborhood bars and restaurants for rules that kept changing weekly that you could, no, no one could ever keep track of. Right now you have a community in New York of these neighborhood bars and restaurants that are finally starting to fight back in some ways from a legal standpoint in terms of forming groups and union type of groups. And then, uh, then also obviously you have the incident that happened out in Staten Island with Max Public House, which defiantly opened their bar in the face of all these restrictions. And, uh, you know, they went, they got into it with the New York city sheriff's department and there was a whole a week, about a week long incident there. And they're still, you know, making noise, uh, not saying don't want to condone what they did is the right way, but it's an example of when you push people too far and you don't allow them the runways to make, you know, to make a, a living so they can feed their families, you know, some people are going to react in this manner. So we'll be diving into, into that stuff uh, in the next film. Yeah. I, I, it's again, I alluded to it earlier the importance of the hospitality industry in every um, big city, but also as this kind of opportunity for artists, musicians, actors who come into these big cities with hopes of becoming a part of a, of what they want to do with their lives. Absolutely. It is. That is uh, the dreamers that come here to perform on Broadway, to sing, to, perform on television, even behind the scenes to work in television, producers, writers, et cetera, uh, you know, musicians, uh, predominantly a lot of them come here and they are employed in the hospitality industry to, to finance those dreams. And if you suck all that out of New York, how does New York maintain, you know, being one of the cultural epicenters of the world? So I'm hoping that we'll go through another cultural revival as we did in the seventies and eighties when, you know, New York was broke and uh, that led to underground movements such as punk music and hip hop that were born out of, uh, you know, out of that era. Well, I don't, who knows what comes out of this era artistically, but I, I hope that it's not chain restaurants coming in here and gobbling up all these neighborhood bars because that's going to culturally impact uh, the neighborhood, the, you know, a city that should still be a city, you know, of neighborhoods. Yeah, that is exactly what was going through my mind when you were talking about kind of the harassment. Well, I was thinking there'll be a bunch of Bennigans, right? Yeah, yeah, Bennigans, TGI Fridays, or Hennessy's. We have Hennessy's. There's, there's, yeah, any number of these exactly because this is prime real estate, and these are in neighborhoods that are, were probably being gentrified or have been gentrified or some version of you know what's what's around the corner for these different neighborhoods. This is the fear I have. I mean, just to, I'll go off script a little bit here, but no, no, it just, it does feel like, uh, especially when it has to do with real estate in this country, but also around the world, mm -hmm. there is a 
significant amount of money, dark money, hedge fund money, that's just going into anything that's viably, viable real estate wise, is just being gobbled up for no good reason other than they just want to own it so that at some future point, they can cash it in. I just feel like we're just, it's just happening everywhere. Look at Coogan's in Washington Heights that had been around since the mid 80s. It was the most, arguably the most diverse bar in New York City. You had cops, you had, you know, the local, local Dominican residents, you had, you know, Puerto Ricans, you had this conglomerate of different people that came out. And out of that came artists like Lin-Manuel Morena, you know, yeah. like, and now that's shut down and it's probably going to be replaced with, you know, a Whole Foods yeah. or whatever. And is a Whole Foods going to have the same impact as Coogan's? Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Also, these places are also kind of like neighborhood watchdogs. They look out for one another. And when you spend money locally at a local spot, usually that money gets passed around the neighborhood. You know, so if you spend a dollar at a place like Coogan's, you're turning that into a dollar seventy-five for the rest of the neighbor that surrounds Coogan's because they're gonna they're gonna spend their money local as well. So yeah. that's the that's you know some of the other fears that are you know compounded on top of you know what we're dealing with. That it's in the film where you talk about people who come in who haven't need an operation. They can't afford. People chip in. They throw their money in the in the tip jar. Whatever it is, they they know about it. They care about it, and they try to do something to affect it. The it's like the subterranean part of of society is what these kind of places are. These sort of things for a community, where they have, where they're they don't have a billboard out in front saying, "Hey, we're here to help the community," but they do but it's part of it. They have been since the dawn of the revolution, uh, structures of American urban life, and yeah. um, they, need to, they need to be preserved as so. You can't tell me that, that George Washington didn't hang out in a few pubs before they decided to, to tip over the, the apple cart back in the 1770s, yeah. right? Pretty, con pretty confident guys like Alexander Hamilton, especially Benjamin Franklin, were perusing <laughs> taverns as they were writing down ideas on how the government should be set up. So. Surrounded by people who were of the community. These were, yes. these were people who were dealing on the ground with what was happening in their society. So, Absolutely. I, I I've, I cannot recommend this highly enough. It's just a really well done, beautifully paced. It looks great. Uh, it's just everything about this film, this documentary film called Last Call, The Shutdown of NYC Bars. Before we started, you mentioned some of your previous work, Quiet Storm, the Ron Artest story. Again, another person who was known for something initially that was pretty terrible, but who as a person is really... Um, uh, relatable, uh, and seems to have come out on the other side as a much better person for it. If, yeah, well, here's the thing with Ron. If Ron doesn't thank his psychiatrist after hitting, you know, the, the championship shot in 2010 against the Celtics, are we at this point in our society where mental health is treated, you know, as being viewed properly as it, uh, as it could have, uh, as it should be? Uh, I don't think so. And Ron never gets the credit. So I thought it was important that, you know, his trauma was analyzed and spoken about. And it's spoken by his words and people that knew him best. I think we were able to create the first authentic mental health sports film and, and we told it the right way. So Absolutely. I'm so, I'm so glad because I, I, especially now after what the country and so many communities like New York City have been through, if mental health is not 
uh, something that you find to be important enough, there's something there you need some mental health therapy yourself. You can go hit up Ron. He can tell you about the breathing exercises that took him three years to master that led to him, uh, you know, being able to. Well, Johnny Sweet, I want to thank you so much for Last Call, the shutdown of NYC bars. And I also want to thank you for uh, spending a little bit of time with us here on Film School Radio. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, greatly appreciated. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.